0: months ago I got a call from a friend someone who weekly prays and listens to God for our church and I got this phone call and this person on the line goes on to explain something that God had I believe prophetically um, shared with them about about us about our congregation and so I've been sitting with that word it's kind of been on the back burner that I heard over the phone that day and I've just been mulling it over in prayer and just curious if God would ever bring it to the surface and have me share it with all of us. And as I studied this passage and as I began to pray and listen to the Lord, I I think this is the day that that word connects with what God is trying to say in this passage. So, pick up in verse 1. It reads, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. So remember, Jesus and the disciples are riding a wave right now, right? You remember the accounts that we just read. It's a wave of wild miracles and moments together. They're on tour, essentially, and they're going from this place to that place, and miracle after miracle is happening. It's really the greatest tour these young disciples have ever been on. They're just, they're just on a high. And you remember the accounts we've read. So, so you had Jesus speaking to a storm at sea, and it listened to him. Do you remember that whole account? That's quite an odd one. I guarantee you Peter remembered that till his death. Remember that time Jesus in the boat we were about to die and he said, peace, be still. And the storm listened and stopped like he was speaking to a toddler. Remember that? Yeah, I'll never forget that. And then secondly, Jesus uh, delivering that deranged man of a legion of demons, it said. And they watched 2,000 pigs jump off a cliff to their death into the sea. You know, that, that happened. And then after that, it's quite a tour. Jesus is healing this woman of an incurable 12-year disease um, by his clothes. You remember that account? She just touched his garment and was healed. And then lastly, Jesus kind of Climax as it builds to where Jesus goes into a room where a 12-year-old girl has died. She has been dead. There's mourners preparing for the funeral, they're planning it out, and Jesus says she's not dead. She's sleeping. They laugh at him. He goes in there and he commands the girl to come back from the grave, and she does. I mean, it's been quite a ride for these disciples. At this point, this is where I think you know James and John, the disciples, are brothers. James is older, and he's pulling over his younger brother John, and he's saying to him. Man, we really made a good decision to leave dad's family fishing business to follow this rabbi. I and mean, this has been awesome. They're happy they're there. The verse says in verse 1, Jesus went away from there. So from that healing, or from that, that, bringing that girl back from the dead, Jairus' house. It says he went from there and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. The first question I had when I read this is, why at this point in the tour did Jesus decide to go home? Why then? I mean, it was building. It got to this momentous moment of even defeating death. And he says, back in. It's time to go home. I want to go back to Nazareth. I want to go back to Nazareth. Did he need some rest? Did he want to see some familiar faces? Did he want to show his family and friends that he grew up with all that God was doing through him? We don't know because the text doesn't tell us. What we do know is that the journey from Jairus' house all the way down to south, down to Nazareth, he's going back south, I'm thinking of some country songs when I say that, is 25 miles. So it's a 25-mile journey, probably took a couple days. And so they make the hike down south to Nazareth, and they were on a high. Verse 2 And on the Sabbath, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? The way this would have worked is that any qualified Jewish male could get an invitation from the leader of the synagogue to give a little word for the congregation. You didn't have to be a rabbi or, a, you know, an official accredited rabbi or a, a scribe to be invited to speak on, like, on a Sunday. You know, this was custom to invite someone in the congregation to come up and just just give a little word. You know, just expound a little, maybe on Isaiah, maybe five, seven minutes. If, you know, that, that's all we need. Just do that. And this being where Jesus grew up, so many folks who hadn't seen him maybe in years, uh, but they grew up with him as a child. They lived down the road from him. They, did, they played Little League, whatever it was. The hometown boy is now back for the weekend, and he's going to give a little word. Of course Jesus should get up and give, give a little word. And all we know from reading Mark's gospel, all that we've seen so far, and how he operates, Jesus, is that Jesus doesn't really give a little word, right? That's not exactly his thing. He's more the, you know, drop a crazy parable, blow up everyone's preconceived paradigms and entire worldview, heal everyone in the town of their terminal diseases, tell some demons to shut up, raise a girl back from the dead before lunch. He's that kind of speaker. He doesn't really just give a little word and move on. And so it says in the verse, that they were astonished at what came out of his mouth when they handed him the microphone. And it says that they were offended. They were shocked way past their expectations of this kid I went to high school with who's now back saying all of these odd things. And it prompted them to ask some questions, five in fact. Five rhetorical questions right here in these two verses. We already read verse 2. There's a few more in verse 3. They say, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Hoses, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at Jesus. Let's bring those questions to the screen. There's five of them. and We're just going to take them one at a time. The first question is, where did this man get these things? Where did he get these things? The first question is about Jesus' schooling or lack thereof. You see, you've got to understand this historically about Jesus. Jesus did not go off to graduate level rabbi school like some of his elite classmates. He didn't do that. He stayed local. And he didn't go off to the big university. And rather, he went straight to work with his dad as a manual laborer. You probably have some friends that did that after high school. That's how Jesus operated. College wasn't in the picture for him like most people in his family. The second question they ask is, what is the wisdom given to him? And that whole question is about doctrine, truth. How do we know what Jesus is saying is true and orthodox? You can just imagine. Has he gone liberal? Has he gone conservative? Has he gone charismatic? What is all this stuff? This is a very real moment, right? We grew up with this guy. Was he coming back all enlightened? Right? We've never heard these things. Where did he get them? The third question is about where does he get his power? How's he doing these mighty things? Is this real? Is this smoke and mirrors? Is he an illusionist? What is this? Where does he get his power? Is it from God? You remember earlier, the rulers of the religious uh, system asked the question, is this from a dark place? Is this from God or is this from Satan? Is Jesus into witchcraft now? Is he into crystals? New age? What's he doing? I'm trying to bring the questions into today's moment, but that's what they're asking. And you can just imagine one of the moms, you know, saying, you know, Josiah or Jacob, come here. Didn't you grow up with them? Y'all were close in high school, weren't you? What's he been doing since high school? What happened to him? It says they were offended. And they asked five questions. The fourth question in the verse Uh, This is probably my favorite. Isn't this the carpenter? Carpenter, in that world, when you look at the Greek, is actually equivalent to construction worker. It doesn't actually mean that Jesus worked with wood. It just means he was this overall title of construction worker, manual laborer. In fact, just a few miles from his town in Nazareth, there was a town named Sepphoris, and they were building this whole new amphitheater and all this stuff. It's likely scholars say that his father, Joseph, got hired to be a part of this massive project, and he took Jesus, his recent graduate, his eldest son, to come and help him out in the endeavor. He was a construction worker, manual laborer. And this town says, Isn't he a carpenter? Just like we are. What does he know about the kingdom of God? He's going to teach us what to believe. He's one of us. He works in construction just like we do. I see him down there in Sephora the last couple years before he went on this crazy tour. He's just like us. Who does he think he is, that he's different from us and can teach us all these new things? The fifth question, and are not his sisters here with us? That's a question about roots and heritage, right? Here he is coming back to his town trying to show us that he's better than us now. But aren't his sisters here with us? We're good enough for the rest of his family. They're not trying to break out of this small rural town like he is. Jesus' response to these questions, to such a warm homecoming in Nazareth, is what you find in the next few verses. Pick up in verse 4 and 5. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do, this is important, no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I want you to look closely at the stark contrast in this one verse He could do no mighty work there, verse 5, compared to everything else we've read and seen from Jesus' life in the Gospels. It's been mighty work after mighty work after mighty work. It's been story after story after story of Jesus doing miraculous things. But the verse says, and look closely at the language, could do no mighty work there. This should be a happy moment for Jesus. This should be his homecoming. His community should be celebrating him right now. He's the hometown hero, but he gets none of that. It says that they were offended by him. His own people here in Nazareth reject him. I want you to get into the emotion that he might have felt. I want you to get into what the disciples might have thought. Psst, this isn't going like every other place we've been. Why don't they like him? Why why did that miracle not work? Why does that person not want Jesus to pray for them? Where are we? Isn't this supposed to be his hometown? are these people supposed to love him? You can imagine loudmouth Peter probably wanting to grab the mic and, you know, rebuke everyone in the room for not loving his beloved rabbi. The situation here is those that apparently know him best, better than anyone else. These are the people that claim to really know Jesus. I grew up with him. I know the real Jesus. He's a fine man, but I know him better than anyone else. They claim to know him. And the question I have for us is who are those people today? The community that claims to know Jesus so well. That's us. That's the modern day church. We're now his people and we're the ones that claim to know him. You see, the reason his own people did not believe in him was precisely because they thought they already knew him so well. We know how Jesus is. We know all the things. We've heard it all before. I grew up with the stories. I know all that stuff. I went through Sunday school. We actually studied the Bible at this church. We go expositionally through pastors through pastors. Pastor John does it every week. We know him. We understand Jesus in the kingdom. We might never say that out loud. But we certainly can have the temptation to think that about ourselves. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to. Have said, Yeah, I've heard all this stuff. Both those that have rejected it and those who are trying to follow it. I've heard all those stories. I grew up with those. What a slippery place to be as a congregation, if that defines us. Let me tell you something there is a vast difference in knowing. About Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. Vast difference. And knowing him personally and experientially. You could tell me all about your uncle. You love your uncle. He's like a saint to you. You could tell me all about Uncle Bill. Let's give him, I don't want to say a better name. His name's Bill, I'm sorry. Let's call him uh, Uncle Bill. Sounds like a crazy uncle. You get the stereotype. We're going to call him Uncle. It doesn't matter. (laughs) <laughs> Uncle, Jim. Uncle Jim, thank you Uncle Jim You can go on and on about your Uncle Jim How much he means to you How giving and generous he is How successful he is He's inspired you all his life You can tell me all about Uncle Jim But there's a vast difference in you tell me about him And me actually knowing him for myself Jesus says the one thing that decides the difference is right here. He says it over and over. There's one thing that decides the difference and knowing about and actually knowing being in fellowship he defines it very clearly. I'll give you two examples. We can bring them to the screen. Matthew seven. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, who claims to know me will enter the kingdom of heaven. But then he says, how, but the one who does the will of my father, who is in heaven. So doing the will of God equals knowing God. Mark 3, another great example for this moment, because remember we're talking about people who claim to know him, people who claim to be family, right, in his hometown, and we who claim to be family, we're Christians, we're in his church, I go every week. Look at, he draws a dividing line. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother." And my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He is family. She is family. Who does the will of God? What does that mean? It's one simple sentence, but I think it has such profound implications. I've been thinking about it all week. We know him by doing his will. We know God by doing God's will. There's a thousand other ways to try and know God, but the the scriptures are clear. We know Him by doing His will. Jesus talks about this over and over. There's something about doing God's will that attracts the personal presence of God into your life. There's something about it. About fumbling at it, trying and failing, doesn't matter. God gives grace. God gives mercy. But when you have a life that's intent by his power running through you. And you set God's will as true north. Even though you move in all kinds of directions. But you come back to that center. And to that true north. When you're that kind of person in grace. You attract the presence of God into your life. Unlike the person next to you that claims to be a Christian. It's sad, but Dallas Willard said there's a difference today in those who claim to be Christian and those who are actually disciples. And Jesus is saying the dividing line on so-called Christian and disciple is doing the will of God. Not perfectly, but it's true north for me. I love that passage. I didn't put it in the notes, but I thought of it like 20 minutes ago. I cherish this promise. It's in John. Can I flip a page? Here we go. John 14, verse 23. It doesn't get more explicit than this on what we're talking about. Jesus, words of Jesus, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's obeying his will. So we could say it this way. If anyone loves me, he will keep my will. He'll do my will. And my Father will love him. So that's consequence. And look at the big consequence, and we, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, will come to that person and make our home with him. You don't get God any closer than saying, "I want to live there. I want to live there in that person's life. That's where I want to set up home." There's something about doing the will of God It attracts the presence of God. Let's go back. Mark 6. Here's how the whole day ends at the synagogue. Verse 6. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. I'll read it again. Jesus marveled. He was shocked. Let's be clear. He was taken off guard. He did not expect this kind of homecoming in Nazareth. He marveled because of their unbelief. This is the first time in Mark's gospel account you see Jesus doing the marveling. Every other story we've read practically, it ends with, and they marveled at what Jesus did. They were astonished at what Jesus said. Not here. Jesus is doing the marveling. And what has Jesus so dumbstruck? What has caught the Son of God off guard? He seems in every story we've read to always be in total control. What shook him this day? The verse says he marveled because of their unbelief. That's the object. Their unbelief. here's what we can't miss about this whole situation it has very real implications for us as a church I want to show the connection between what's happening in that verse marveling at their unbelief and what's happening in verse 5 that he could do no mighty work there what's the sole cause of Jesus not doing any mighty work there he says it's the people's the congregation's unbelief don't miss that And don't gloss over some theological thing over that. I don't really like that verse. Because you know what? The son of God's all powerful. He can do what he wants. I don't like that Mark wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that he could not do any mighty work. I saw scholars run all kinds of weird gymnastics around this thing because they didn't fit into their theology. Well, it's in the Word, so it better find a way to fit into your theology. Your theology is not based on the Word. In some kind of sense, I'll give that caveat. Jesus could not do any mighty work because of the congregation's unbelief. I look at that with everything we've read about what Jesus can do. And I think to myself, well, then unbelief must be a very powerful thing if it can in some sense stop the Son of God in his tracks, then this spiritual thing called unbelief must be incredibly powerful and disabling in some kind of sense that Jesus marvels at it. You see, unbelief is like a spiritual cancer that can run through a family, it can run through a congregation, it usually takes a lot of time to build and to grow and to expand in the body of a family, the body of a congregation. You start off with belief, right? Unbelief is, is in this sense, is talking about people that did believe. Unbelief becomes this thing that just grows over time, and it, it begins to, to just darken and, and create a certain coldness of heart towards God. I remember Buddy Hoffman, the founding pastor of all the Grace Churches. Remember he told me one day, I think we're at Waffle House because he loved to eat there, as do I. If you want to get me a Waffle House gift card for Christmas, not that you need to give me anything, but I will take that. We were sitting at Waffle House, if I remember correctly, and he said to me, John, do you know the one thing that I fear? Which is like, wow, no, but I'd love to know. you, You know, he set the whole thing up. Do you know the one thing that I fear? I said, no, what is it, buddy? He said, the one thing that I fear is growing a cold heart. That's what I fear. I thought of all the things you could fear in the world, that's the one thing. That's what I fear. But he knew as you grow in age, you grow in trials and tribulations, failures and successes, scars and wounds, and all kinds of different things. He said, the one thing I don't want to happen to me, because I've seen it over and over, is to grow as an old man, and grow to have a cold heart towards God. In me. Unbelief works like that. Unbelief when it spreads into a person, a family, or a church works just like that. Got some help this week as I do every week from a scholar named Lamar Williamson. He says this about what's happening in the passage that I think speaks to us we could bring that quote to the screen he says the clear implication is that if they had believed in him jesus could have done a great deal more the spiritual climate of a congregation its sense of expectancy its openness to the power of god at work through jesus christ will in fact have a great deal to do with how much god's power can accomplish in that particular community wow our unbelief does not render god impotent But when it is dominant in a congregation, its dampening effect on the mighty acts of God in that time and place is evident and sad. I want to ask this, and this is where I want to land the plane. It's going to take some time, but this is the kind of last thing I want to talk about. According to the Bible... (coughs) What exactly or technically does unbelief in a body of believers do? Well, we've talked about it. And I've given you an example, Cold Harley's things. But, but biblically, what's the exact New Testament terminology for what unbelief in a body of believers, what it does to that group? The New Testament word is the word quench. Quench. Unbelief in a group quenches that's the word it uses, the activity of the Spirit among them. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, simple verse, five words, I believe, says this, do not quench the Spirit. Well, black and white, not everything in the Bible is black and white. Here you go. You want one thing to do this week? Do not quench the Spirit. Let's go to the next slide. Getting technical with you, what does quench mean? To extinguish, put out. It's usually attributed to heat or light, fire, also desire, hunger, thirst. Right? It's bring to naught, eliminate, render ineffectual. To put something out. It's like uh, the flame on a on a candle. It's to snuff it out. That's what it means to quench. And it says in the verse, "Do not quench." The spirit, the activity of the spirit among you as a people, and so if that's how powerful unbelief it is, right, that it can quench the spirit, that's what happened in Nazareth that day. It rendered the activity of what God was going to do in the room to nothing. It says He can only heal a few people, which I'm like, I'll take that on a Sunday. <laughs> Come on, we to raise the level of expectation. That's the, I walk away saying. Not bad. He was the son of God, so maybe I'll feel better and sleep at night because of that. But I would take that, right? Here's the question. If that's how powerful unbelief is, how much more powerful is belief in a community? That's what I want to dwell on. How much more powerful is belief? You look at the stories we've read. Jesus has said things like your faith has healed you. Right, That that, that doesn't put all the emphasis on the person, but he's saying faith and belief opens a doorway for the Spirit of God to come in and do something. And so the question I want to ask is, if unbelief is that powerful to render it to nothing, then how much more powerful is belief operating in a church? To answer that question, we got to go back to our model. And our model is the early church in the book of Acts, the biblical church. And what you're going to find is a community, not of unbelief, but of belief by the grace of God. And there's this really curious story of something that happens in a prayer meeting in the book of Acts. Normal old prayer meeting. I look forward to most prayer meetings, but sometimes a prayer meeting, you've been there, drone on, right? Okay, This wasn't one of those. Something curious happens because there was great belief together as a congregation in the room. So flip with me to the book of Acts. That's a few books to the right in the New Testament. And go to chapter 4. Everyone still with me? Are we good? Okay. We are going somewhere. Acts 4, pick up in verse 29. Again, the question is, what can belief do for a people? So all together, they're praying. They've got great belief. Verse 29, and this is their prayer. So they're praying. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand, God, to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they're expectant. They got belief. There's a fire. They want to see God do things. Look what happens in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Shaken, it says. Um, anyone been in an earthquake here? That's what I think of when God shakes matter. Now, I wasn't there in the room, but there was some kind of phenomenological, physical thing that happened that they walked away, and when they were telling Luke, the writer of Acts, all we can say is that the room shook after we got that praying it was shaking. God touched the room. And it shook. What I read here is that there isn't a quenching of the spirit going on. But a shaking of the spirit going on here. Very different. Not a quenching. But a shaking. Their belief together in Christ attracted the spirit's activity so closely that it shook the very ground that they were Standing on, when infinite power and energy, i.e., the Holy Spirit, touches matter in that kind of way, there's a shaking. How could there not be? Here's what's important that's awesome and good, and we want that. But what's just as important or more important is what that closeness of the Spirit to the point of shaking did to the community in its wake. Like after that prayer meeting, they really weren't the same this is historical evidence. I'm not just giving you a pep Let me give you the evidence. It's in the next verse. Verse 32. This is a real church, y'all. This is one on fire. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Well, that's a mighty work in America. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet and they distributed it to any who had need. You know what it takes to get that kind of lifestyle? a shaking of the Holy Spirit for the presence of God to draw that close to change a people. There's some more evidence, just one more, because it's fun, and it's right here. Chapter 5, verse 12. Look at this description. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people... By the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, none of the rest dared to join them, the apostles, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people who gathered from the towns and around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were All healed. Which denomination is that? I want to go there. God's doing things there. God's present there. And before I go any further, let me just let you know as your pastor, this talk is not about, God's not doing anything in our church. We need to be like these people. Pull up your spiritual bootstraps. That's not what I'm saying. So stick with me. But I am saying is that's really good. Like, that's the real thing right there. That's the New Testament kind of church. That's the kingdom adventure that in your bones as a Christian, we all want. That. Now, when you read that, I know where some people go, especially men, so I'm talking to you and women, you read that, and you say yeah that adventure of the kingdom are you asking me to leave my job and leave my profession and leave the success that I think God's given me and wear Jesus sandals and go around and be a missionary no I'm not it's the kingdom adventure in the places where God has already called you what happens if God begins to get a hold of your business not just for success for the kind of ministry you can have to your employees, right? Don't take it out of context. There's a kingdom adventure awaiting you where you currently are. And this is the kind of church life that we're made for. And so two months ago, bring it all together. I got a call. Person on the line had a prophetic word to share with you. And this is what they shared, something that went along like this. They talked about how, you know when you first come to faith, whether that's in your teen years or 50, when you first come to faith, there's this zeal that comes with it, this um, youthful spiritual zeal that you have. Where you just want to know God and discover more about God and be around God's people. And if it, wow, it says that in the book of Acts, does that still happen today? I'm open to it. Let's pray for it. I mean, there's just this innocent zeal. The Bible calls it zeal and spiritual fervor that you have in your spiritual youth, whether you're 50 or 18. Right? But there's something that happens to a man and a woman on the journey of faith. There's all kinds of success and failure, all kinds of crisis, hurt, doubt, all the rest, right? Where over time, what can happen is some of that zeal of your spiritual youth can begin to go down a drain and begin to go out of your life more and more and more. To where you're 15 years, 20 years, even five years into your spiritual walk with Jesus And that same zeal and fire of your spiritual youth if you're honest, it's just not there like it used to be. Now, here's the situation. When you first come to faith, what you have coupled together is lots of zeal, but little maturity. Were you that guy or guy? Right? You couple... Lots of spiritual zeal and fervor, so good, so innocent, so from God, and lots of spiritual immaturity, things start to come out sideways. I know I was there. But what can happen is God can do a work in maturing us spiritually and emotionally in faith, and that arises, but our spiritual fervor descends. And so this person online was sharing with me. And what I heard from them is, what could God do with a person in a congregation that had both seasoned maturity and lots of zeal? What if you couple those two things together in a congregation? That fire of our spiritual youth with that seasoned maturity of life. That's a powerful combination. It says in Romans 12, if we could bring that to the screen, is one of those black and white statements. Never be lacking in zeal. Well, I guess I can't debate what Pastor John just said a second ago. There it is. Never be lacking in zeal. Doesn't matter what's happened or hasn't happened in your life or in your walk the last 20 years. It just says, don't be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. That's how it defines zeal. Serving the Lord. It's not saying don't be lacking in zeal because if 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 you're lacking in it, you're really morally irresponsible and you're wrong and you're guilty and you're condemned. That's not what it's saying. It's saying don't be lacking in zeal because you're going to need that on the journey of faith. You're going to need that fire when you're facing a storm in front of you. Never lack it. Keep your spiritual Fervor. I think of zeal as you know when you're growing up and your parents had that fire and they had that like iron prodding thing that you were never allowed to touch, right? And your dad and mom would go in and they would they would poke the embers to flame it up, right? And get the fire going. And I think that's how zeal operates biblically. Is it's like this prodder that prods those, those embers of belief and faith to flame back up. So the Bible says, don't ever forsake the zeal of your spiritual youth. The reality is you can't create zeal, but you can pray for zeal. You can position yourself near the means of grace, like reading the word and getting together as a house church and all those different things to receive a renewed zeal. The question I have is this. What could God do with a congregation who believed God can still do things. What could God do with a people who believed God can still do things? What could God do with a congregation that carries both seasoned maturity and zeal? There aren't many of those. It's an endangered species. I can name several off the top of my head, men and women, and I can think of some congregations Where they're a little older than us even. Well, some much older than us. And they carry both those things. Seasoned maturity and spiritual zeal. One of the reasons I'm looking forward to house church is because it's a community where together we can start rebuilding that mature zeal in the Lord. House church has this way of, I don't know, stirring you up when it's done well to come back to some of the things that you discovered in your, in your youth of walking with Jesus and, and, and learn how to integrate them into your current reality and stage of life. I need you to help me do that. You need me to help you do that. There's something about talking about tragedy in your life only that can happen in the context of a house church kind of thing. See, here we sit in rows, but during the week we sit in circles in living rooms, and there's something about debriefing the the trauma that you might have gone through where God can come in in such a way and begin to heal and renew you and bring back your zeal that you could have never done on your own. Just saying this out loud, I really believe that very thing. That there's something unique about a Christian people that get together as brothers and sisters doing the will of the Lord, that can grow you as a disciple in no other way that you could. I don't care if you go to seminary for 20 years. There's nothing like being with a people who say, together, we're gonna chase God. And we're gonna raise our kids and be good at our profession Let me tell you what. Number one for me is we're going to chase God. And we're going to have the fervor and the fire to do it. That gets me excited. So, let me land this. When I was talking to this person on the phone, they said that, on the other side of examining if we've lost some of that zeal from our youth and have fumbled on how to integrate it. They said, on the other side of examining that and even being drawn to repent and ask God for it, the word went like this, that there would be a new fire on the other side and a new zeal for God's house. I, I can show you the text. And so, I'm going to invite us into a moment to examine that. And look, this might not be for everyone here, but I think it's for most. And I know how it works in the church. I wasn't always a pastor. I wasn't born a pastor. I know the games we can play in church where we can suddenly put up these little defenses and be there and actually convince ourselves that we're present, but we're actually willing to do what the pastor is asking us to do. Can I just say that out loud? I've been there. I'm gonna ask you to do something in a moment. You don't have to get up. of that. It's nothing weird. It's gonna be inside. I'm gonna ask you to do something. And I'll tell you right now, you can put up your defenses and not go. That's your choice. That's fine. You're always welcome here. But for those who want something different, for those who resonate with what they've heard, for those who identify, Fire's gone a little cold. There's something that I think God has for this morning. I think there's a repentance that's going to take you to a new normal. And I want that for us as a church. And so let me invite Caleb, Will, and the team. And as they come up, I just want to take us through some prayer. abandon that spiritual zeal of your youth. the Lord begins to show you that the answer is yes. And ask this question next. God, what does it look like to have both maturity and zeal in my life right now? God, could you just show me a picture, an image, a little daydream of what my life is a 39, a 51, a Twenty-two-year-old would look like if I have both zeal and season. <sighs> After you get a sense of what that would look like. Begin to confess to the Lord. Lord, I haven't had this, but I want it. That's it. Lord, I haven't had this, but I need it. Lord, that fire has gone out. Relight it in me. Lord, we ask right now. Who fall into this category, and I'm one. That you would rel- relight the zeal of our youth. That you would relight a fire in us that has great belief. Lord, that if our heart has grown a little cold, a little lukewarm, that you begin to warm. And as John Wesley wrote about in his story, it says that his heart was strangely warmed. And that was the very beginning of what became the Great Awakening. Lord, we don't need a Great Awakening necessarily sweeping all across the country, although that'd be nice. I just want a Great Awakening in my own life, in my family. So Lord, we ask, give us the spiritual fervor of our youth right now. And we ask it in Jesus' name.